John Piper has said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. In fact, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. In my 14 years as the pastor of this church, one of the things that we have reiterated again and again and again is that our ultimate purpose in life is to glorify God. Our mission statement as a church states right from the beginning, we exist to glorify God and that we are to give him all that we have, that our lives are to be a testimony to him, that we are to give ourselves to him. God's desire, it tells us, is for every person on this earth, to glorify his name. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, on every continent, on every village, in every spot, for all people, and all means all, all people, to glorify and to worship him. And until that reality happens, missions is necessary. Until every person on the earth is glorifying God, Or God returns again and ends this age as we know it. Missions is necessary because there are people who are not worshiping God. You see, we live under the conviction that the only hope that anyone has is found in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the only way of salvation. He is the only path. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. We also live under the conviction that every man, woman, and child on this planet who is without Jesus is hopeless in a future of eternity. And if we believe those two things, that people without Christ are hopeless, and that the statistics tell us that there are billions of people on this planet that are currently in that state, then we have no choice but to engage in the sharing of the gospel with those people who do not know, whether they are next door neighbors across this country or around the world. God calls us to missions because the worship of God is incomplete at this moment if one single person doesn't yet believe. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about a movement of God and seeking the Lord here and now and asking God to move. One of the things that I know for sure is that a true and genuine movement of our great God will cause us as a church to look up, to catch a vision of his glory and his greatness and his goodness. It will cause us to look inward, to see our own desperate sinfulness and our need for him and the grace that he has provided for that. And it will cause us to look outward into a world that is lost and dying and cut off. From a relationship with God. And so over the next few weeks. For the month of May. We're going to examine the lives of people. Who caught a vision of what God had called them to do. And went and told others about Christ. We're going to match that. Pair that with a biblical understanding of missions. And we're calling this series of messages. On mission. 
Tonight, we're going to look first at the life of Jim Elliot, a man who would passionately seek to extend the glory of God among the nations, only to see his earthly life and the earthly life of his four companions end in martyrdom among the Aka Indias in Ecuador for Jim at the age of 29. And yet we do not consider their lives a loss. On the contrary, more of the nations were added to God's glory because of their radical devotion to the glory of God and to the mission of seeing people become worshipers of His. Tonight we're going to look at that through the lens of Psalm 96. So I hope you have your Bibles with you gathered there as you're joining us online, as you're watching this. I hope you have your Bibles with you. And I want to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 96. It's a psalm that describes the glory of God being sung about, the wonders of God being proclaimed, being told. That gives a depiction of the fact that God desires for his name to be spread among the nations. Psalm 96 says this, sing a new song to the Lord, let the whole earth sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples, for the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the people fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate then. All the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. Psalm 96. James Boyce, I think, captures the full impact of Psalm 96 when he says, It is a joyful hymn to the God of Israel as king and an invitation to the nations of the world to join Israel in praising him. It is also a prophecy of a future day when God will judge the entire world in righteousness. It's a type of theology that drove Jim Elliott to give his life as a missionary and inspired him to pray a prayer that I love. One of the prayers that Jim Elliot prayed was, oh, that God would make us dangerous. As believers, we ought to be asking God to make us dangerous to the enemy. I remember Erwin McManus sharing a story about praying with his children after 9-11. And as he was sitting on his bed and they were praying, one of his children asked him, Dad, if we pray... Will God make everything okay? Will God keep us safe always? And Erwin McManus said that as he searched his thoughts and the desire of all that was there, he realized that the true answer to that question is not God will always make us safe, at least on this earth. 
You can look through scripture and see a number of people whose lives were endangered because of following Christ. Even today, as we're talking about Jim Elliot, he lost his life because of following Christ. And so he said, I thought about that phrase, the safest place in the world is in the center of the will of God. It's a well-meaning phrase and it is intended to say, this is where security can be found. And in one sense, that's true, but not in a physical right here and now sense. And so he said, I'm not going to pray that God will keep us always safe. He said, I'm going to pray that God will make us dangerous to his enemies. And his son looked up at him and said, well, dad, would you pray that he makes us really, really dangerous? And that's my prayer for our church. That's the kind of prayer that won't let us be satisfied with a shallow, impotent, useless, and comfortable Christianity. It's a kind of challenge that inspires us moves us, requires more of us. And Psalm 96 lays out what it is that God desires for the peoples of this earth, for the nations, all nations, to do. Describes what he wants and describes what he rightly deserves. First of all, it shows us in the first three verses of this that God desires that the nations praise him. God is identified as the Lord, Yahweh, 11 times in the psalm. Here all the earth is invited to praise him. And three aspects of that praise are specified. First of all, it says that we should sing a new song. Three times we are called to sing a new song in verses 1 and 2. The new song is the good news of his salvation and that we're to sing it from day to day. It looks back on his mighty acts of deliverance, specifically for the Hebrew people, the deliverance of them from Egypt. But it also looks forward to the greatest act of salvation in Jesus Christ, witnessed climactically in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, that says, And they sang a new song. Saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And they sing a new song, it says in Revelation 14, before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders. And no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were the redeemed from among men, the firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God, singing a new song. The idea behind this is that the desire of God is that all nations would proclaim the song that they have been given in their souls because of the salvation that has been brought to them by our God. And not only should we sing a new song, that new song, it tells us in verse 2, should be very specific, proclaiming his salvation. In addition to the imperative, the command to sing new songs, verses 2 and 3 gives us three other imperatives, three other commands. Bless, proclaim, and declare. Singing to the Lord, we bless his name. We honor and give glory to the name of the Lord. We do this as we proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. The idea is not that a day goes by, not a moment passes by, that our hearts and our minds and our mouths are not occupied with the wonder of his salvation and that we're not declaring his glory, which is what it says in verse 3. 
The new song and the good news of the Lord's salvation demands a universal worldwide declaration. The glory of this God must be declared among the nations. The word glory in the Old Testament is a word that means weight or heaviness. And the idea is that there is something of substance and reality to our God. Eugene Peterson paraphrased it this way. Shout the news of his victory from sea to sea. Take the news of his glory to the lost. News of his wonders to one and all. Jim Elliot, born Philip James Elliot in Portland, Oregon, was blessed to have a father who was an itinerant evangelist. And while his dad was not an educated man, Fred Elliot's love and devotion to Christ significantly shaped the life of his son. Jim often had missionaries in his home, and about the age of eight, Jim trusted Jesus as his Savior. As a teen, he thought of being a missionary, and in fact, he was kind of moving that direction even as a teenager. It's never too early to consider those type of decisions. Jim was a fine athlete who saw sports as a helpful way of preparing his body for the rigors of being a missionary. He enrolled in Wheaton College in 1948, joined the wrestling team, began speaking to youth groups about the Lord, and began in his junior year journaling. It's also about that time that he met a young lady that he called Betty, but is known as Elizabeth to us. It was in June 1950 that Jim's passion to see the nations praise the Lord saw his heart drawn to the remote and feared tribe in Ecuador, known in that day as the AUKUS. He wrote this about his desire to see them understand who Jesus is. In a letter to his parents on August 8, 1950, he said, Surely those who know the great passionate heart of Jehovah must deny their own loves to share in his this statement of his that is the call on our lives. He said we must consider the call from the throne above to go. And from those that are out there to come and help. And even from the souls that have been banished to hell. To send Lazarus to my brothers that they come not to this place. And so mom and dad impelled by these voices. I dare not stay home while the AUKUS perish. So what if the well-fed church in the homelands needs stirrings? They have scriptures and Moses and the prophets and a lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. American believers have sold their lives to the service of mammon and God and his rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to the spirit of Laodicea. He says, I will not spend my life chasing a mediocre faith in a well-fed America. When the Akas are dying and in need of hearing about the glory of God. God desires that the nations would praise him. God also desires, it tells us in Psalm 96, that the nations would fear him. A right understanding of who God is will always lead to a healthy reverence of him. Fear and awe of the greatness of our God. We often talk about that in scripture when there are appearances of God or people are given a glimpse of who he is that they respond not with anything other than sheer fear or awe or reverence just last week in the message where we talked about Thomas 
When Thomas realized who was standing before him, the resurrected Christ, he said, my Lord and my God. Other times the disciples would find themselves bowing to Jesus when they understood something that he had done. Isaiah fell when he read or heard about what God was doing when he walked into the temple. People were awestruck at our God. And we revere him. We give him reverence because he is a great God. It says there that our God is a great God and greatly to be praised. Most worthy, most honored He is to be feared above other gods. Why? Because the gods of other gods are idols and they're useless. They're false gods, imposters. They're scattered among the globe, enslaving millions to false systems of religion and false hope. The Lord is great and they are not. He saves and they condemn. The Lord is and they are not. The Lord made everything and they made nothing. When I was in college... My last semester of college, I was short a fine arts credit. And so I tried to find something to finish that out. Had to take two fine arts credits. I'd already taken arts and Western Civ. He had to take a practical fine arts. Well, those of you that know me know that singing isn't a part of that. And know that um, although I am dramatic at times, I'd never, that, that all that being last semester senior, you didn't really jump into theater arts then. And so there was a class for photography. And I took photography and they gave us certain assignments that we had to do. It was a cool photography class. We'd use f-stops and back in the day before, this is really before digital cameras were even around. We, you had the cameras that you would take pictures on the film and take the whole camera and put it in or you had one hour photo. But this class, we had to develop our own film in a dark room. And I remember we were out scouting and we had to portray a biblical story in a photo. And I remember walking in some woods behind an abandoned church, Madison County, Tennessee, and I ran upon this tree that was standing straight up. And next to it was a tree that appeared that it had bent over and was bowing to the other tree. And I took a picture of that and named it the foolishness of idolatry. In reference to the book of Isaiah where he talks about the fact that men would carve out idols themselves, make their own idols, and then bow down to the wood that they had carved. That is not our God. He is not on our level. He is not someone we can control. He is other than, greater than, superior to all other gods. He is glorious. There are four affirmations in verse 6 about the great Redeemer and Creator. It says that we are to honor is before Him, radiating. Majesty is before Him, flooding forth from Him. Strength is found in Him, and beauty is in Him as well. Standing before the great God, we give honor and majesty and strength and beauty that bear witness to the God who is awesome like no other. And our desire is to know him in completeness. Elizabeth Elliot said of her husband, Jim's aim was to know God. And Jim would write, Lord, make my way prosperous, not that I achieve high station, but that my life may be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. Jim had a holy reverence and fear. Well, he attended Wheaton. 
He was struck by that and the calling on his life to the AUKUS. And he wrote, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is yours. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. In fact, he would write on October 28th, 1948. Off of Psalm 1611 that said, at that right hand are pleasures. He said, I prayed a strange prayer today. I asked God and covenanted with him that he would do one of two things in my life. Either glorify himself to the utmost in me or slay me. He said, by his grace, I will not have second best. He heard me, I believe, so that now I have nothing to look forward to but a life of sacrificial sonship because that's how the Savior was glorified in my soul or soon to be in heaven, perhaps even tomorrow. What a prospect. Those are the words of a man who rightly feared the Lord, who said, Lord, my life is not worth living if it is not giving an honor and glory to you. God desires that the nations praise him. God desires that the nations fear him. God desires that the nations worship him. We find that in verses 7 through 9. Warren Risby says that praise means looking up and worship means bowing down. It means to acknowledge and ascribe to God his worth and value by humbling ourselves before him and submitting our wills for his life. You could call this the third stanza of this particular psalm. And we are commissioned, commanded to give or ascribe glory to God. A glory that belongs rightly only to him and that should come from the families of the nations. Almost identical to the beginning of Psalm 29. And there it is the angels who are called to worship the Lord. Here it is the nations. We are to give him honor. All the nations are summoned by the Lord to acknowledge his glory and strength. Glory due to the name of Yahweh, the name above all names. Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus, the name of all names, that at some point that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That the honor that he rightly deserves is proven by the worship that is brought into his presence and by acknowledgement of his holiness. We honor him because of his beauty and splendor. His holiness, his moral perfection, his utter transcendence, his greatness. And in light of our sinfulness and our depravity, our finitude, our limit. And the fact that we are created beings. We and all the earth rightly tremble before such a God. We, compared to the Lord, have no standing before him except for the grace he has extended to us. Jim Elliot wrote on November 6, 1948, Forgive me, Lord, for being so ordinary while claiming to know so extraordinary a God. But here's the last thing, and then we're done today. Not only does God desire that the nations praise him, not only does God desire that the nations fear him, not only does God desire that the nations worship him. Most of those are things that you have heard before and would amen and could say, I could almost write this sermon for you, Pastor. But the last one is something that we don't talk about enough, but is definitely a part of what it means to follow the Lord. In verses 10 through 13, he basically says, 
that God desires for the nations to enjoy Him. John Piper, who I quoted earlier about missions and worship, loves to say that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. In other words, God wants us, He wants the nations to enjoy Him. And not only that, that we must recognize that the greatest enjoyment and fulfillment in our lives will come when we are centering our lives on worshiping and glorifying God because He is where we find the richness of life fulfilled. We could spend all of eternity listing the reasons we should enjoy our God, but there are just two highlighted in this passage. First of all, because He is sovereign. He is over all. He rules. He reigns. He is in control. He shall judge people righteously. He says that he plays no favorites and that God will judge. And because of his grace and mercy, we will spend eternity with him. And he says that because of that, we should rejoice and be glad. That we should sound like the sea roaring and being joyful in the midst of all people. Even the trees, he says, rejoice before the Lord. We should echo their praise. We also enjoy him because he is a righteous coming king. The psalm ends on a future note, a note of hope for those who love and enjoy him, a note of warning for those who reject him. He is coming, coming to judge the earth. It's not just a revelation thing in scripture. It's not just in the prophecy pages. Even in these psalms, we find moments of describing that God is coming. And he came first in the form of a human in Jesus, and he is coming again. Revelation 19 says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. In his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that with it should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robes and on the thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We enjoy the fact that he is in control and he is coming again. And we find our fulfillment in him. Jesus would remind people again and again that if you're looking for fulfillment, joy, satisfaction in anything but God, you will be disappointed. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the living breath. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jim Elliot was a man who gave his life for the passion of other people seeing Jesus. And when you realize that Psalm 96 reminds us that God desires for the nations to praise Him, for the nations to fear Him, for the nations to worship Him, and for the nations to enjoy Him, then we have to ask the question, what are we doing as our part in assuring that the nations have the opportunity to respond and hear the message of the gospel? Jim Elliot wrote a letter to his family saying, Remember, you are immortal until your work is done. But let the sands of time get into the eyes of your vision to reach those who are still in sit in darkness. They simply must hear. 
He says, listen, God's not going to take you until your work is done. But don't take that to mean that you've got all the time in the world to figure out what it takes to send the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. He says, it is not acceptable for them to sit in darkness. They must hear. On January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott, along with Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint waited, hopefully, for another meeting with the Aka Indians. Having made contact with several friendly encounters in previous days, however, a group of ten men attacked the five missionaries and brutally murdered them. Jim Elliott's mutilated body was found downstream in the river. There was no funeral, no tombstone for a memorial. On resurrection day, the glorified bodies of these champions for Jesus will rise from the dirt of Ecuador. Jim left behind the wife, Elizabeth, and a baby girl named Valerie. They've been married less than three years. On January 30th, 1956, just 12 or 22 days later, Life magazine published a 10-page article on the martyrdom of these men entitled, Go Ye and Preach the Gospel. Five devout Americans in remote Ecuador follow this precept and are killed. Our nation was shocked and Christians all over the world wept. Jim would have been embarrassed by all of this. After all, in a letter to his parents dated June 23rd, 1947, he wrote, Missionaries are very human folks just doing what they are asked, simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. And in a letter to his mother dated August 16th, 1948, he would write, Oh, what a privilege to be made a minister of the things of the happy God. I only hope that he will let me preach to those who have never heard that name, Jesus. What else is worth while in this life? I have heard nothing better. Lord, send me. Finally, in his note to his wife, the last note to his wife, dated January 4th and found on the river beach where he died. He says, our hopes are up, but no sign of the neighbors yet. Perhaps today is the day the Aukos will be reached. We're going down now. Pistols, gifts, novelties in our pockets, prayers in our hearts. All for now. Your love, Jim. Jim kept his journal for many years and his entry on October 28th, 1949 is famous. However, if you miss the context of that, you miss a marvelous blessing of the Lord. Jim's journal on the day before actually talks about reading about another missionary, Brainerd, and how his thoughts of true and false religion were like his. He says, saw in reading him the value of these notations and was much encouraged to think of a life of godliness in the light of an early death. I've prayed for new men, fiery, reckless men, possessed of uncontrollably youthful passion, these lit by the Spirit of God. I have prayed for new words, explosive, direct, simple words. I have prayed for new miracles, explaining old miracles will not do. If God is to be known as the God who do wonders in heaven and on earth, then God must produce for this generation. Lord, fill preachers and preaching with thy power. How long dare we go on without tears, without moral passions, hatred, and love? Not long, I pray, Lord Jesus, not long. The next day he wrote, one of the great blessings of heaven is the appreciation of heaven on earth. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott once said, our orders are clear. The gospel to every man. Because he believed this, he said that he had found in his own experience 
that the most extravagant dreams of boyhood have not surpassed the great experience of being in the will of God. And he said, I believe nothing could be better. He says, that's not mean that I don't want other things and other ways of living and other places to see. But in my right mind, I know that my hopes and plans for myself could not be any better than what he has arranged and fulfilled. Thus, may we all find it and know the truth of the word which says he will be our guide even until death. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot was a man who read a psalm like Psalm 96 that described God's desire for the nations to praise, to fear, to worship, and to enjoy him. And asked the questions, why not me? Jim did what he could to gain that which he could not lose. The question is, will we? Will you? Will I? May the Lord give us more Jim Elliots who are willing to do whatever it takes to see the nations come to God. And may we answer the question, how will we be a part of reaching the nations? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you Thank you for this example of a man who gave his life literally to see people come to know you. Lord, we're thankful for the end of that story that shows that many in the Alka tribe became believers. That Jim's wife and the other wives went back to that group and explained to them the gospel and forgave them and saw them come to faith in you. Lord, we are thankful for all that you have done because of this story. But most of all, Lord, we're thankful for your grace and mercy. Or forgive us in the many ways that we have settled for comfort instead of doing what you have called us to do in reaching the nations. And may we be a people that sacrifice whatever you call us to do to reach the nations. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.